Hello everybody and welcome to Hospitality Maverick Podcast with me, Michael Tingser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders and entrepreneurs in the hospitality industry to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. In today's podcast, we are very, very excited to be joined by Cliff Edrich. Cliff is a partner in the team, the most effective brand communication consultancy in the UK, according to Design Week. As a champion for brand strategy and experience, Cliff has worked with a number of very known brands, including The Body Shop, The BBC, Gatwick Airport, Heathrow Airport, and Southwest Airlines. And we're going to touch more on that in the interview. Cliff is particularly passionate about employee experience and engagement. And we sat down to talk about this, leadership, how to engage your frontline employees, and a lot more. You're in for a treat, a bucket full of nuggets and inspiration. So grab pen and paper and coffee and enjoy. It gives me great pleasure to welcome uh, Cliff to our Hospitality Maverick podcast today. I've been really looking forward to this. I know you have some very interesting views on how businesses should design and organize themselves. So welcome. Thank you for having me. We met here at Platform 9 in Hope, where we're today as well. And we met with, I think it was Carrie that introduced us. And the first thing you said, it was quite maverick, you said that there's something wrong. I think it was a, a typo on the website. And I thought that was absolutely great. As a Dane and a very direct person, I just loved that. I thought, that's amazing. That's very maverick. And then we fell into conversation about what we'll be doing each, the journey we've been on, and also similar things we'll be doing. I come from, from the hospitality world where we believed in some of the same things as we're going to touch about today. The, the surface profit chain, people before profit and understand that people this is a big leverage to create profit and and that's that's what we're gonna dive in today and, and how we actually can design organization and make them high performance on that maybe you should start off with so people know your story where mm-hmm. where you're from and how did you get to where you do and, and what kind of businesses you're part now and what is it that you're doing out there yeah sure well um i'd start by saying that you can only tell somebody that they've got a typo on their website if you can immediately trust them so i must i looked at you and thought there is somebody i can talk with so and I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be telling you a little bit of my story today where have i come from if you go way back i'm an actor by trade i went to drama school and uh, came out of drama school was looking for work and uh, did a number of pieces but eventually realized acting wasn't going to pay me that much i got offered a job at the body shop they were asked for actors to come in and look at how we could open up the the factory to public tours. So six actors gathered for six weeks to look at how you could tell the story of the body shop. We put together a public tour and I was taken on afterwards to keep that tour going for a another year and then after that I was lucky enough to work in the communications department at the body shop which was a playground this was the very early 90s the body shop was going from strength to strength and it was experimenting all the time with how it could engage in employees and customers so it was a perfect playground for me to start to look at different ways in which you can engage with people that was my my training really was on the job uh, and I worked with uh, Anita Roddick, who was the founder of the, the Body Shop, who was inspirational in terms of being single-mindedly focused on an idea that business was about social and environmental change and making money. One, one thing that people forget about her is that they, they remember her campaigning spirit. They remember against animal testing. They can remember uh, domestic violence campaigns. They can remember endangered species campaigns. 
but she was really focused on making great quality product and selling it. One thing I know about Anita is she's divisive. You talk to some people and, and they immediately fall in as an Anita Roddick fan and a Body Shop fan, or, or she's annoyed somebody along the way. But that sort of single-minded opinion, I really observed galvanised people, and it galvanised the right people. So the people that rallied to the Body Shop flag inside the business... They were passionate about that business and they, they, they defend it all the way. I had a, a great training and, and then I was given the opportunity to go into consultancy. And I've been in consultancy now for the past 20 years. And I went into WPP, which was owned by Martin Sorrell at the time. They didn't have an employee engagement agency. And so we were his only startup agency. It was called Banner McBride. And we specialised in working with FTSE 100 firms looking at their employees and how could you begin to engage employees around their ideas so I was able to take some of the ideas from the body shop and put that into practice in places like uh, BP or GlaxoSmithKline and which very different companies and since then I have stayed in consultancy I'm now with a company called The Team our specialism is brand I've come to realize that there's one great organizing thought for all organizations which is what is your brand purpose what is your brand promise it's, it's much more than uh, just a vision to make money your your brand purpose does have a social purpose we we all have a reason for being here uh, and it's getting to the bottom of well, what is your reason for being here uh, and focusing on that because that's why customers buy from you they don't just buy from you because you have a great product they buy from you because you actually stand for something and it's also why talent will come and work with you as well. So that's been my passion and remains my passion in life. We just wrote a blog this week around high-performing teams and the first thing we touched on is purpose and actually being able to articulate and having a purpose that's more than just, you know, if it's, it's a, in our environment doing, you know, hotel service or restaurant selling food, you actually need to have something deeper. And if you start to look around and look at business that's very consistent and successful like we have a local one here in Brighton called Mushroom they are having a campaign that's called Fish Love and they got like guys like Richard Branson on board and other people Judy Dents and stuff like that and they're all about they know they are taking you know this is a sushi restaurant they're taking fish out of the ocean so we need to be aware about protecting the ocean and that's a very big you know, passion up there. So they now, now they are a single restaurant, but have one of the biggest campaign and more influenced campaigns around protecting the ocean and stop overfishing and making sure that people eat, you know, the right fish. Now we're not all eating salmon and stuff like that. They still, as uh, Carl said on our podcast, is challenged around, you know, recoupment and stuff like that. That will always be a challenge, but it's a bit easier in a way because they have something that's bigger than just opening a restaurant every day. Yeah, I agree with that. And that, that's a prime example of how an organisation is then starting to ask itself a fundamental question, which is what is our responsibility in the world as, when you look at our core business? And similarly, I'm working with a, a travel company at the moment and uh, we've seen recently a big backlash against tourists. If you look at uh, some of the coverage in Venice where there have been residents protesting at the number of people in the city in the height of the summer and that's happened now in Barcelona as well. It's happening in a number of places where people are reacting against tourism because tourism is no longer necessarily seen as bringing in something good to the local economy it's actually seen as damaging the local economy. It's using up housing for example, Airbnb moving in uh, and ensuring that housing is taken by tourists rather than local people that's seen as damaging but travel is 
essential to us that the more that we travel the more we see the more we actually learn the more we expand our horizons which is really appreciation and understanding of humankind it's probably never been more important than it is today so with this travel company i'm working with i'm asking them well what will you do beyond selling trips where are you going to send people to and Are there areas that you're prepared to say, we're not going to send people there because that is irresponsible? Uh, Are there areas where you do send your customers, you're going to give them really clear advice on what they should and shouldn't do? And suddenly, I'm talking to this company and I'm saying, you could become a campaigner. You don't have to just be somebody who sells something. You campaign around your product and you campaign around how your product is perceived. Now suddenly when you start talking about the campaigning spirit that sits behind your customer, you're creating a movement and that movement is a movement which many millennials and certainly Generation Z, they're constantly saying, when I'm looking at my employer, I want to know what you stand for. I want to know that it's more than just the pay packet. What what am I doing here? Suddenly a movement, a campaigning spirit, that's something they'll think, yes, I'd like to get involved in that. From hospitality where we're in, I think there's a lot of business there. They are just there to do a transaction, sell food, and it's packaged in, in, in this lovely branding. And from the outside, it looks like doing something really good. You have maybe a CSR strategy around things as well, corporate responsibility or whatever. You do a lot of PR about things. But when you start to dig underneath that, it's not really happening. And, and I think it would be interesting here to hear you on that. How do we actually build brands? Because a lot of people think it's these, you know, neon signs and it's all this lovely marketing, all the campaigns going on and the way they, maybe if you have a store or a restaurant, it's the way it's decorated. That's, that's your branding and it tells something about you. And of course, it entices people to buy because they're very clever about what they do. But how is brand really built in, in your view? We, we talk about the B word. You know that the, the second that you say the word brand mm-hmm. to, to a client, they tend to get the wrong idea. As you say, people start to think about the logo or the, the font or the color. And those things are brand identity. And now brand identity is not brand. The identity is an expression of your brand. It's really important. My agency, the team, we specialize in brand identity. But we only focus on brand identity when we know what your brand stands for. We'll say to any client, first and foremost, let's build the brand from the inside out. Let's get everybody focused on what you really stand for. Then we can start to look at what your photography should be, what your typography should be, all of those elements that begin to express what you stand for. The brand is a promise. And Anita Roddick always used to say, it's the, the space you rent in someone's mind. When you realise that you are renting a promise in someone's mind, and, and going back to being really single-minded, then you, you can focus on what your brand stands for. So you mentioned food there. And I think immediately of places like um, Aldi and Waitrose, right? both supermarkets. But arguably, uh, Aldi, you could say, and I, I don't know what their brand promises, but I could say with ease that Aldi is focused on low prices, <laughs> And it's focused on low prices for a reason. It believes 100% in people's access to food. You know, it believes that many people in this country live below the poverty line. In fact, 14 million people, it's estimated, in this country live in poverty. Now, Aldi could say the reason we are focused 100% on low prices is that anybody who comes through that door is entitled to ensure that they get access to the food we need, which is why we have just two choices of everything. You've got really basic, which is cheap, and slightly better. That's it. 
Now, there's a single-minded purpose. We believe in access to food, and we believe that everybody should have something. Waitrose? It's not like that, is it? You've got more choice, uh, and a lot of that choice is around quality. It's about where it's sourced. It's, it's about saying that we believe in the foods of the world. It's about we're saying that we believe that in environmentally a responsible sourcing of food. And, of course, they'll have many lines that aren't like that. But suddenly you've got a very different point of view. Now, that means that you're saying to your people, to all the people, when you come in, everyone is welcome it's get people in get people out they're not necessarily interested in the quality of the food they're interested in the price of the food they want to get the food shopping done they want to feed their families and suddenly that's a very different attitude service to waitress where you're saying uh, okay we might want specialists that want to talk about the food so you're training people in a totally different way that doesn't mean that the people aren't working in those particular supermarkets shouldn't feel just as passionate about why they're selling food but it's why and brands are all about your why why are you doing what you're doing and that's what you have to focus on it can feel like the soft end of communications and the soft end of business but actually we're all emotional beings and when you can tap into people's emotions that's when you get loyalty both from your customers and from your people so it's not soft it's hard it really does mean your attrition levels go down those attrition levels go down means you're not recruiting you're not spending costs there you're actually ensuring you're growing the capability of people you're delivering a better service so it might feel soft but it's got some very hard measures it seems like you are building the business from the inside out you're starting with you know the deeper purpose and then you go on to talk about how is the employees actually going to understand and deliver these things. And I agree with you, it's hard business. When you get this right, you have principles you can live on for, for ages. And we're going to come back to an example in a moment, which is one of my favorites to talk about as well, that's doing really well, Southwest Airlines. A lot of people talk about, we need to get this employee experience right. We need to improve engagement. It's sometimes when they do all these initiatives, they, they roll out great strategies and initiatives, but they don't actually improve the engagement is that because they may be the, the purpose the why hasn't been articulated clearly enough before they start doing engagement strategies what is your experience on that oh see if you're looking at customer loyalty people will look at the sales cycle and they'll look at every single touch point that a customer will go through and as a result they ask themselves has that experience consistent at every touch point the same thing applies internally uh, there is an employee life cycle, and that employee life cycle starts probably before they join the business. Uh, it's what's their awareness of the business as an employer. And then it will go through the uh, hiring process. So how do I actually apply for your job? How do I get interviewed? What do I hear about my interview success or, or, or failure? How, how do you notify me if I've got a job? What's day one like? What's it like before I actually come through the doors for the first time? What do I see? And that life cycle will extend all the way through to what training do I get? What reward? What recognition? What's it like when I leave? What conversation do you have with me when I leave? How do you stay in contact with me? And all those touch points in the employee life cycle, they need to be consistent and they need to match a brand experience. Now, just as the, the why is there for customers, why should I buy your product? Why should I buy from your company? Uh, there's another why from employees, which is, okay, why should I work for you? Why should I go the extra mile? And that why is not just what you stand for, your core product, but it's also what am I going to get out of working for you? And that can differ. So some organizations can say, you're going to get reward. Uh, you know, the more we sell, the more money you get in your pay packet. 
that's it. That's what you're going to get. But others might say, you're not going to get reward. We're not going to give you reward, but we'll give you the best training in this sector you're ever going to get. So actually, it, once you go and apply for a job somewhere else, you only have to say that you've worked for us. You'll automatically get an interview. Or other people might say, it's actually just recognition. It's the culture. It's the spirit. It's the camaraderie. You won't find anything like this anywhere else because the people that you're going to be working with are people that you really want to be with other pe- people might say it's trust you know we'll just trust you we'll let you run this shop this store like it's yours all of those reasons will appeal to different people in different ways you have to focus on what is the why for an employee beyond your product why am i going to be working with you now not enough enough of our clients really focus on that why and they don't really sort of focus on it and bring it to life enough. It's what's called the employer brand. Yeah. Now, the employer brand is too often just seen as recruitment marketing. But actually, that employer brand runs through that entire life cycle. And once you know what your why is and you apply it to every single part of that life cycle, just like you would for customers, suddenly you've got a really single-minded reason for being. You've, you're famous for something in the market amongst your employees. Alternatively, you can just see your employees as a commodity and just say, they're just people. They're just serving coffee. They're just handing out sandwiches. Uh, anybody can do that. Yeah, I'm sure anybody can. Uh, I can go and buy a, a sandwich for one ninety nine from any shop I want. I can do it in any shop I want. I want to make a choice, and very often that choice is an emotional choice. It's not just driven by price. It's why people go into Pret-a-Manger. I'll go into Pret-a-Manger, and suddenly I'll find I've spent £10 on lunch. £10 on lunch? Well, why not go to Tesco's and get a sandwich for £2 and go back and have a glass of water at my desk? I go into Pret-a-Manger because occasionally somebody will say, hey, have a free coffee, or just the way they smile at me, or they look like they want to be there. Now, that is worth, suddenly, an additional £8. That all comes from the fact that they've managed to get their people into a position whereby they understand why they work for pret manger There is a camaraderie there, there is a why at work, and that's the value of the employer brand. That is the brand on the inside. The brand on the outside is product choice you've got the brand on the outside is uh, the way they position that product the brand on the outside is the brand identity eventually brand on the outside is the advertising that's the brand on the outside but the brand on the inside that's the people that's why i go there i go there because you know they smile at me pret is a very good example of somebody that has a very clear articulate why they implemented that into their people journey and their operation so they make it work so they make work work for the staff and the staff has time to do that and as you say if suddenly you have spent and sometimes you have that additional buy so sometimes you add 12 pounds because you're getting that you know little sweet or a cake as well or a breakfast you're suddenly spending six pounds on you could go many places and get that breakfast but it's the the consistency of that experience they create and that culture around it and it just moves fast because they want to be there. Yeah. People don't want to be there. The one number one thing I see when I go in to work with operator and restaurant, you can feel that energy when you come in. You can see if people want to be there and they want to serve you. If they want to serve you, they feel very comfortable and well-trained in your job and they move you fast because yeah. you're also buying time. In restaurants, you've gone away from buying products. You're buying time and experiences. 
and it's about how can you translate that, that through your culture. And they had ingrained that in every little thing you do. And if you've seen ever seen a, a prep kitchen, or it's so well done that even the employee engagement in there it makes life easier. I'm not saying they're getting everything perfect, but they definitely have thought it through in many ways. So I think that's a very great example. If you were to take a prep employee and say, "Well, why do you want to be there?" They probably couldn't tell you immediately. That they'd say it just feels right. But it doesn't feel right by accident. It feels right because they've been told that the brand story. Somehow, somewhere along the way, they've got in the into their minds that this is different. This is entertainment. This is food with fun. This is food with a warmth, with a heart. That's what it is. And that that story has just got under the skin of people so that they they just naturally understand it and when you can get understand that brand is a story ultimately you're telling a simple story about why you're in business then you bring it to life there there was a um, uh, an exercise that was done in the states a few years back where some guys bought 100 objects off eBay for $1.25 each. So they had 100 objects that they bought. And what they decided to do was to resell those objects on eBay, except this time they, they put a story behind each object. Now, one of the objects that they bought was a small shot glass, and it had a, a woodpecker on it. I think there were maybe a, a set of four of these shot glasses. And bear in mind, this was bought for $1.25. Now, they told a story about these shot glasses and said that these woodpecker shot glasses were from Missouri and that there's a famous uh, story that goes around that when you go out hunting in Missouri, what you do is you go out hunting for the day, you bring home your kill for the family, you come down through the woods and you get to a Missouri bar. They all celebrate by having a shot of whiskey in the Missouri shot glass. They put this story on eBay and then they put the the same product up and they sold it and they sold it for $70. They bought it for $125 with no story. It was just shot glasses. They put the story in place and said, now these shot glasses for a sale. People read the story. Suddenly they bought it for $70. Now, what explains that huge jump in value? Because it's still a shot glass. It's just been given a story. And that's the power of a brand. And that's the power of a brand story, if you get it right. I read a book last year that's called Story Wars. You don't, you don't even know that book. Uh, an American author, I can't remember the name right now. And he talks about the importance of stories and how they're actually true generation. Years and years back to year zero when Christ was born, it's all stories we buy into in life because it's the emotional factor. It feels right. Yeah. I can connect myself with that story. I want to be part of that story as well. Like the body shop, you joined a, a story, a journey that was evolving. Pret is a very good example as well. I think what's impressive about some businesses, you see business, some founder leaves their business, but then they need to come back again because the story dies. So I don't mm. think it's the, they say culture dies or the business dies. It's because the story dies. So they come back and they're making the story. So Howard Schultz and Starbucks is a very good example. Apple, Steve mm. Jobs. But it's interesting when you come back to Pratt, Julian Metcalf and co. hasn't come back. They're not part of the business and they've just been sold again. But it continues and I'm sure there's challenges within that. But still, they have this so deeply ingrained in the business, so they must got some design in them. And the way they decided to think organization from the outset, they must have done it very differently. What is your experience with these kind of organizations where they really get it right? Is that something they design way back, or is it by luck and coincidence? Interesting, I, I talked about the body shop uh, at the start, and obviously the body shop was uh, sold to L'Oreal, and subsequently it's been sold again to Natura out in Brazil. But I... Uh, I saw that just a year ago they were trying to recapture 
the campaigning spirit of the body shop. And I, I'm aware that Natura obviously feel that L'Oreal didn't invest in that because by not investing in that, they felt that L'Oreal were just looking at the product that's in the store. And the, the product that's in the store is only half the picture, as, as we said earlier. So my experience of founders coming back, obviously Anita can't come back. Sadly, she's not with us anymore. But you can get that founding spirit back into the business if you go back to your your heritage and ask yourself, why did this brand start? Well, what's this brand actually all about? Why do people buy this product? Then people will buy into to the story. They don't have to buy into the founder. Probably why Julian Metcalf doesn't need to go back to Pret-a-Manger because when that business was purchased and purchased again, they knew they were buying a brand. They're not buying a sandwich shop. They're buying a brand. But how many brands are there out there who are what we call system one and system two if you look at behavioral economics they talk about uh, system one and system two thinking system one thinking is um google hoover probably pretz in there as well you don't necessarily say to yourself i'm going to go and get a sandwich you say i'm going to go and get a pret starting to become system one thinking people say just google it will you suddenly system one thinking the brand has become part of the vernacular and part of the language but most brands aren't in system one, they're in system two. So you don't say, I'm going to go and get a Sainsbury's. Okay, Sainsbury's sell a whole broad spectrum of stuff, but, but there are many brands out there that just sell one product, but you don't say that. The reason you get to system one thinking with certain brands is because they do invest in their stories. There doesn't need the founder that needs investment in the story. That's what, that's what that needs. So besides yeah. working with brands, employee experience, is there other things you're working on? Because I guess there's a lot of connected areas when you start working with us. We work in three areas. Brand strategy and purpose, I, that why that we've, we've talked about. Brand on the inside, which is working with your employees. And then brand on the outside, which is working with your customers. Uh, and then running through that is a lot of focus on digital. Because digital has, is more than a channel nowadays digital is a way of life we go back and people just used to say oh well digital is just like another channel like a piece of print it's another channel like an event digital is every, everywhere it's the the air we breathe so we focus uh, a lot on what's your digital brand experience going to be like but equally how is digital then informing the decisions that you make in the future so We'll be asking ourselves, what data can we generate? And how rich is that data? How's that data inform in real time some of the things that you are doing, both with your people and also with your customers? I think the area of employees and, and digital data is something that has been woefully neglected. We still live in a world where most of our decisions or too many of our decisions are made by things like the annual employee survey whereas actually we live in a world today where you can look in real time at exactly what people are thinking what they're saying uh, how they feel about a business you could make some decisions immediately about what your business is going to do right now to improve the way in which people work and the way in which people feel uh, the way in which people receive communication so digital is going to be uh, and continues to be uh, a big focus for us not just the experience but also the, what sits behind that what comes with it so so we're working a lot in that area one of the things that we see when we go out and work with um, hospitality or restaurant chains or operations is that uh, there's a lot of technology that has come into these businesses 
from either they want to improve operational processes or they want to improve the, the customer experience. And a lot of money been thrown into the customer experience. That's why you can, you know, click and collect, deliver screens in shop, especially McDonald's have done a massive investment into this. Arcos, if you're going to retail, and many of them, they, they're struggling getting this technology working. What we've seen, there's a disconnect between the people's evolutionary journey on inside the business to understand how they utilize the thing and how that actually is connected with, we started about talking about the purpose to why, why we're getting all this technology in. And uh, I think there's what often happens is that as a senior management see a technology and think this is going to make our business better and they throw that into the operation but they haven't really understand how that's going to impact the front line. So there's a disconnect between what you believe in head office works and what really makes the experience work out in the front line. Is that something you see when you talk about creating digital environments? Because digital is like one of these phrases that people have very different perceptions about. Yeah, I, I think that there's digital communications and there's digital in your work processes, which are two different things. I mean, digital isn't a thing, it's a life form. There was a, an interview that um, David Bowie gave with uh, Jeremy Paxman back in 1999 on the, the advent of the internet, which is fascinating. He captured what the internet was going to do way back then how it was going to entirely change our lives it was not a channel it was something that was going to be floating all around us when you see the power of digital to for example look at the way in which people walk around a shop where do they walk to the most how far are they reaching for different products Uh, what are they talking about to customers what are customers actually asking so there's no reason why you couldn't pick up on exactly what customers are asking for you on a day-to-day basis we have it in our homes alexa does it alexa looks listens to us all the time we could be listening to what our customers are asking for us in real time at a, a store point immediately and then serving up the next day the sorts of things that you might want to be talking to to our customers about because this is what they're talking about right now that all sounds like creepy valley because it we we position that as a big brother listening to you but actually it could also be positioned as uh, we're coming up with digital products that are going to help you just do a better job if our raison d'etre is the conversations that we have we need to have meaningful conversations if we're going to have meaningful conversations then we need to know what people are interested in what they're asking about and so we need to listen to that now there's no reason why digital can't be a force for good in that area the problem is that as human beings we naturally always see digital as a power for bad sometimes you know we're suspicious the digital product that you buy in if it's for your work processes then buying the stuff that's really going to ensure that you can help people do their jobs better and and see it all the way through focus on one thing if you if you're getting a digital product that's going to serve up some data that you're going to review next month and then make some decisions maybe the month after on some of the things you might want to change in the business that's great fantastic it's two months old if i go back two months if i go back to november 2018 and think about the world as it was back in november 2018 it's probably unrecognizable to january 2019 and that's how fast the world's moving right now so the data that you start to look at and how you serve up what that means to your employees has to be real-time stuff. That sounds frightening, that is an investment, but that's going to be the difference between the firms that are working at scale who want to ensure a consistent experience and the the other firms, that's going to be the difference. The ones that really focus 100% on how data can help us, help our people do a great job. And it doesn't have to be creepy valley, that doesn't have to be scary.
So that's the sort of digital in your work processes. But digital communications, though, I, I worked with the BBC a number of years ago, and I've, I've always carried around the belief that uh, their three sort of originating values of inform, educate, and entertain, which you, if you go and talk to anybody in the BBC, they'll still say our reason for being is to inform, educate, and entertain. But entertain, I passionately believe that internal communications for employees needs to be entertaining. And the more entertaining you make it, the more people are prepared to actually take on board the messages that you have. Digital is a highly entertaining channel. So we were, recent, we were recently asked by a, a bank to um, communicate with uh, its employees the fundamentals of ring fencing. I'm not going to tell you what they are right now, other than to say it's incredibly boring. But everybody in the banking world needs to know about ring fencing. So what we did was we created a simple digital ring fencing game. And that ring fencing game involved you creating a bespoke character and you could lay on different hairstyles, you could put different clothing on the character uh, it was a cartoon character you created that character it was created then as your own personal badge you could then share it via the social uh, media that existed within the bank uh, and suddenly you've got thousands of people completing a really simple game to create a silly character because that was what was in it for them they thought hey yeah i'll create a stupid character at the same time they had to learn half a dozen really simple boring facts but what's driven the communication is entertainment not the boring facts whereas normally you go out and you'd say right we've got to do some training right now and we've got to tell you these six boring facts nobody remembers any of it nobody's prepared to listen nobody's engaged they're trying to find workarounds they don't really want to do it but if you then look at digital as an entertaining channel, then suddenly you can think, well, that's a, that gamifying that content using digital suddenly makes communications a little bit more exciting, entertaining, and you, you've got your, your people on side. And immediately they feel like, well, this is quite a good place to be. They don't need to know that they've just been trained. I think it's very interesting what you said about do one thing well. David Hyatt also said that, do one thing well, and that comes to everything you do and you want to implement in your organization. Find what actually adds value or make work easier if it's internal processes of this communication again. What is that one thing? And follow it through. Have patience with the process. Not try to do five things at the same time because people get overwhelmed. Get them to buy in in a fun way because you know you see, we're always going to be working with compliance stuff, especially when you food safety is one of them and when you struggle with food safety it's probably because people haven't understand that that's a very important part of your why to make people feel safe when you come into a restaurant you said something about listen to people as well and it's not creepy valley and i agree with you if you understand to take data and you are transparent about the data you use inside your especially when it comes to employee engagement service i run a lot of them i have a power past for McDonald's where we did a lot of engagement but if you're very transparent about what you're using their feedback to it can become quite powerful in an organization and you actually action on it you said the, the, the old survey the yearly survey is redundant you need real-time data how does that work for many organizations how, how did they get that real-time data because many of them are still maybe working in spreadsheets classic you know survey tools like google surveys and stuff like that how do they get to that real-time data and understanding how their people feel right now one thing that businesses have always been um, suspicious of is social media they're happy to look at it as a, a medium for reaching customers but um, 
when it comes to a medium for reaching their employees, then they're suspicious. You, you have to embrace the fact that the world in which we live in is one which we're, is a network society. And, you know, many firms use um, WhatsApp channels to ensure that they're creating small network groups to keep employees informed on what might be happening in their store or their branch and, and so forth, which is, which is great. But actually, uh, if you're using that already, you know, if you're, say, a manager of a branch, a manager of a store, and you're using WhatsApp to keep in contact with your, your people, fantastic, you're handing over a lot of data to Facebook. So you're handing over to Facebook data around where your people are, where they're going to, what they're doing in the evening, what they're talking about, or what pictures they're sharing, what's in those pictures. All that data is collected by Facebook and used to inform the algorithms and serve up the advertising that we eventually get. Why well, give it to Facebook? Aren't you interested in uh, this, this content? And uh, Facebook recognised that, which is why they've invested in Workplace, which, which Facebook at work. Now, once you then started to think about how do I then capture that data and how do I use those channels, then you'll start to think about, well, let's, let's have a social media strategy inside our business. And if you then got a social media strategy inside your business and if you've got a channel that you're prepared to push all your content through. So let's say you've got morning briefings that are going out to every single store or branch. Uh, you're going to push it out through the social media channel. Everyone's got access to it. You can see when people are viewing it. You can see when they're downloading it. You might see how long they're taking to read it. It's certainly on web pages now. You can even see if they read to the bottom of the page. You can see where the hotspots are on a page. You can see what they hover over, what they're looking at, what they might click on, what they might not click on. So automatically you'll know whether or not content is going through, whether content is being read, whether content is being explored. And then if there's content that you know is really rich, that people love, you can then invest in that and say, we'll do more of that. If there's content that they're not reading, but is still really important, you mentioned safety there. Let's say nobody's hovering over the safety content. Then that doesn't mean you say, oh, we're not going to do safety anymore because nobody's interested in it. You start thinking, we've got this in the wrong part of the page. We're serving it up at the wrong time of the day. We've got the wrong meta tags for it. We've got the wrong labeling for it. We're not positioning it in the right way. That's when suddenly data and digital becomes really exciting because you can then start to tailor things to people in a way that's right for them and you can then ensure that the messages that you need to get across do get across. But how many organisations have yet got themselves to a point where they're thinking in that way how many of them are thinking in the way that Google think about their customers, that Facebook think about their customers? We're not, because we still see digital as a tool, as a channel, as a thing, but it's not. It's a life form. It's, it's everything. You can, you can understand everything about a person, everything about a body of people, and it can be a force for good. And uh, it can be a force for bad, yes. But you know what? That's life. There's always been good people and bad people. But if we start seeing digital as a way in which we can learn and then serve up to people the things they need to do a good job, to advance their careers, to be better, that is a powerful thing. And it means that we can do things for people that work inside organisations and then those people can do things that are better for the customers that are coming into their businesses that, that want to have a good time. And that's the way we have to see digital. It does need regulation, absolutely, because there are unscrupulous people out there. It does need regulation, but we do need to recognise that digital can do that. Um, and that takes some investment. Probably also just takes a request. So go say to Facebook, 
I know you've got workplace. Explain your vision to Facebook. Say, this is what I want. Write out that digital vision, that digital strategy, this utopia that you're going for in the next couple of years. Work with those people. Come up with those products. Serve them up. See what happens. If you also have the new GDPR and, and all these things in WhatsApp groups and stuff like that, and then we worked with a couple of operators where we have taken the, the, the operation manual or the, the Bible or the blueprint and tried to make it more digital. And uh, we used a platform called Seek, and Cern uh, from Seek was on, on, the, on the podcast, uh, yeah, I think it's about eight months ago. What's really interesting with them as well, there's, you can see if people are engaging or not with the content. And they found out quite quickly there was a lot of text so there's a strategy now around this company to start actually starting to be more video-based because they found out we are not employing academics out in these stores. They are people that are time poor, first of all. So if we want to get any content, we need to think about how they consume content in their private life. So they start to think about the employee much more as they do about their customers because they do all this analysis, as you say, on their customers. They go on Facebook uh, analytics and Google analytics and all that and they take data down and create products and campaigns around that. But now they're starting to well think, how can we campaign inside our organization so we can become over-subscribers of employer? What is the things we need to fix to make it work? And they start to look at it. And that's very simple data they're looking at. And of course, you can become more and more complex about things. And it's a resource thing as well. But there is tools out there to help you with that and create your own social and digital environment inside where you're in control over the data as well so nobody else owns the data. I would like us to take us to um, one of the, the businesses you work with which is a, a business I adore and admire myself, Southwest Airlines. If people haven't heard about them, they are portrayed in many management books of the one that does things right around culture and operational excellence and customer service. They are in books uh, like uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins and many, many other books like uh, Service Profit Chain as well, written by James L. Haskey and a group of other professors for Harvard. So they are darling out there and they have, over years, what is interesting with them, and you may be correct me on this, but what I have seen, if you look at their share price, is that they constantly improve their shares, not by 20 or 40% a year, but 3 to 6% every year. And they're very consistent through, even when you have a storm in the economy, they go through and they still have customers and they're still happy. So tell us a bit about that business and what is the work you've been doing with it? Because uh, I was thinking, why did Southwest Airlines need help? Because they're doing so well. What was your, your gig there? What was that all about? Michael, I thought exactly the same thing when they approached us. I thought, you want to talk to us about hospitality surely you know everything there is to know about hospitality and i think that that is the reason that they are at the top of their game is that they never think that they know everything there is to know about hospitality so we we were asked to go in and do a piece of work which is again a piece of digital communications to help codify what great hospitality looks like both in terms of how it is delivered to their customers and how employees receive hospitality inside Southwest. This piece of work came off the back of some work we'd actually done for the Royal Bank of Scotland and the Royal Bank of Scotland has been in a huge turnaround recently and has just returned to profit but as part of the turnaround story we were asked to look at what were the 
brand practices that uh, different uh, employees could invest in uh, in terms of what were their strengths their personality strengths that they could bring to the business. We developed something called uh, the brand profile, or it was called the determination profiler, because we we came up with an internal rallying cry called determined to make a difference. This profiler enabled employees to answer a series of questions, and it determines their psychometric profile their strengths when it came to delivering the brand. So, for example, you might be a visionary or you might be a planner or you might be somebody that encourages great team spirit and, and so forth. This enabled the bank to, to say to all their employees, Look, this is your strength, uh, this is fundamental to our turnaround, this is where we want you to really apply your strengths, but also be aware of your colleagues and what their strengths are. That meant that for the bank, they were able to get better team conversations going about how we address different situations. They were also able to think about, well, how do we then begin to devise learning and development that's great for the people that we have, that addresses some of the strengths and weaknesses we have? That was a great job. And and there are 80,000 people inside uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, and we had 45,000 people complete this voluntarily. We're we're very limited uh, internal marketing. This was seen by Southwest Airlines at a conference and and they called us and said, we've seen this product and we wonder whether or not it can be applied to hospitality. We went away and we thought about that and we went back to them rather quickly uh, and said, yeah, it absolutely can. We worked with them on a really simple structure whereby we posited that for hospitality and delivering hospitality, there's a couple of axes at work here. The first axis is you, you, you are either uh, an extrovert person, you're an entertainer, you love being the life and soul of the party, or you're an introvert person, you quietly get on with things behind the scenes. So there's an axis there. But then there's another axis, which is you either rationally understand uh, the importance of hospitality, I understand that this is fundamental to the work that we do, or you intuitively understand hospitality, you just live it. You're just one of those people that is just naturally hospitable. Now, when you take those two axes, you form a grid. And you can be an extrovert person that just gets it and is like that. But you can also be an extrovert person that actually rationally understands it. You, you don't necessarily display all of the best traits of hospitality. But you rationally understand you need to change. Equally, you can be an introvert and intuitive, introvert and rational so suddenly you've got a four box grid we worked with southwest airlines by exploring this grid and we interviewed we got access to around about 50 employees who they felt were delivering great uh, hospitality and one of the things that we we explored with them was well what were they doing that demonstrated great hospitality within this grid and that enabled us to develop eight personality types for hospitality when we do this work we always cross-check it with the university of cambridge we work with them to ensure that the the profiles that we come up with are robust and we work with them to make sure that the questions that we ask to determine what your personality type is they're robust from that you're then able to create a, a digital game and that digital game asks you a set of questions those questions can be very simple such as you know i, I love coming into work in the morning and saying hello to everybody and finding out what the weekends are like Yes, no. And those questions will serve you up your personality type. Now, that personality type will determine why or how you show great hospitality, what you should invest more in, but also what you should need to focus on, what you need to build. It can also, once your team members have completed it, you can say, 
do you know what? If you work with Bill more in certain situations, you will get a lot more done. You'll deliver the fantastic hospitality. In fact, if you and Bill are at the front of the aircraft, we have the best hospitality team going because we've got both somebody who is maybe a, a team player and we've also got somebody who is a, a protector. So we, we, we identified with Southwest Airlines that you know, a team player is somebody that is making sure that the aircraft is working, making sure everyone's doing their job. A protector is somebody that's probably looking out for the signs of concern that might exist on someone's face. Somebody's a nervous flyer. They'll identify that person that might just need sort of tap, tap on the shoulder. Are you okay? Have you got everything you need? Suddenly, you can create scenarios whereby these personality types work together, deliver brilliant hospitality. So we serve this up as a digital game, the same as we had with the Royal Bank of Scotland. Uh, so far, they've had 23,000 completes. Again, with very limited internal marketing. One thing I've learned from Southwest Airlines that they do exceptionally well is they do a lot of communication. There is a lot of noise. Very often we go into an organisation and say, cut down on the amount of communication you're doing. Southwest Airlines have gone the other way. There is so much happening. You go into that business, there's always something new happening. But we've got 23,000 completes uh, this year. Now, the great thing that Southwest Airlines have done is they've gone even further than the bank because they've then asked themselves, right, how do we cut this data now? How do I look at everybody that is in the Dallas hub? And not only that, how do I look at everybody in the Dallas hub who might be working in ground ops? Within ground ops, what personality types do we have? Where have we got a spike in personality types? Where have we got a dip? What does that mean for those job roles? Does it mean that we need to recruit more people into those roles? Does it mean that we need to encourage people because we've got a spike in that type to behave in a certain way? Do we give people more permission to do more types of hospitality because we realise we've got a spike in uh, our go-getters in a certain area? That has enabled us to develop a dashboard for leaders. So every leader now in Southwest Airlines can tap into the dashboard and they can look at the data that's there. They can look at their teams and their hubs. They can look at the types that they have. And not only that, they can be served up ideas on this is how you can now lead your team, your hospitality team, in the way that is right for them. It's the data that's behind the tool. The tool's entertaining. People have completed the tool because it's entertaining. But behind that is the data that enables leaders to do the right things for the people that they've got. So that's been the exciting work we, we've done there. This is very interesting because I'm an MBGI practitioner and uh, use type often when we go out to high-performing teams session. And, and we did one with a, a head office where a typical restaurant operation, we have operation team, you have marketing, you have PR, you have HR. And it was very interesting to see the spike of personality type because there were enough people, I think there were about 40 people we did this with. You can see that operation had a certain profile, and if you looked at the leader of that team, had that profile. So either people conform to that personality because they liked it maybe had a different personality deep down the mbti profile would be different but they conformed because they knew to be successful they need to act and behave like a leader and i said and we talked with the heads of these teams and that was the same in all teams maybe you need to be aware that people are copying you almost too much you don't have that diversity in your team and that's where type or personality which i think is very interesting you're just taking on the next scale you're taking a whole organization and making them do small personality tests in a way that's built on type profile because the 
it's very powerful because then you can start having a shared language and understanding why are you working better together with Bill, as you said, but I don't like to work with together with Bill. Try it out because actually if you understand Bill more, you know how he makes you better. As normally default, we seek people as like-minded and the same and that doesn't make us better. And the same goes for an organization if we don't strive to become setting a new standards every time and do things differently. So that, that's that's super interesting. I, I never heard that any organization taking it to, to that level. So that tells you why my question, why, why do they need to do that? Because they want to be in the forefront. They want to be mavericks of their industry to keep on doing well, adding value to the organization. Yeah. So I guess that's not an easy-peasy job to do. I don't think it, it's probably not a week's job. It's probably a long period. You have to be quite committed as an organization to get this done as well and have a certain you know view on the world to make that work it's not a, a long job in terms of setting up the framework but it is a long job in terms of ensuring that you execute it once that you then use the data that managers have the conversations if you don't use the tool to its full then you haven't got the most out of it. So that is the commitment. That over the course of the year, you're going to use the data. And then, as, as Southwest are doing, uh, it's doing it again and keeping it going, asking people to revisit to see whether or not their type has changed. How have they altered slightly? Which means you have to keep that tool fresh in, in people's minds. To Royal Bank of Scotland's credit and to Southwest Airlines credit, both of them have, have done profilers on more than one occasion. In the case of Royal Bank of Scotland, the first one was around their brand. The second one was around service. How did service need to change inside the bank? And the third one they've done is around motivation about well, why do you come to work here? They do see the value of building data that way. Southwest Airlines haven't just looked at how people serve up hospitality to customers. They've also asked questions around how do you like to receive hospitality as an employee so they've got that data as well so they're going to be ensuring that they run that data and run it again with employees so they can understand how their people like to receive hospitality because we do i mean some some of us like to just be acknowledged when we we come coming some of us like to have a arm around our shoulders when things aren't right some of us like to be told we're doing a good job we have different ways in which we like to receive our own hospitality inside so it's using using that data it's not a long job getting it set up it's a long job in committing to using the data and working with your leaders to ensure that they are using that data because the tools are fantastic digital is brilliant it can serve up everything you need ultimately though if you are my boss it's it's down to how you treat me and and how you use the insights that you have to treat me in a better way if you treat me coldly uh, each day then then it doesn't matter what tools we've got in place it's 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 human interaction eventually at the end of the day i think here's interesting as well how you can improve the relationship between the manager and employee because if you took any engagement survey you will see the relationship between the managers and employees always impacting that most and people they don't leave you know the 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 brand they or the business they leave the managers the nearest managers that's always there's something there gone wrong and and you need when you like myself had team members that left me uh, i have to look myself in a mirror and I can remember I had a situation where we'd done the MBTI and I knew there was one that actually needed a lot of attention a lot of recognition because then that person would perform really well then we got busy with scaling the business and oh the result looked good I think that person must be alright now 
I'm just going to cut down on my visit because I need to focus on these new stores. It doesn't work because we hired the wrong people. We did all the wrong thing. And then suddenly the, 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 the right people leave you, not because you're a cold manager or a bad manager, but you didn't give them that attention they need in their profile. Yeah. So again, you you can also risk assess if you understand to use type. That's been my way of saying it. Uh, I've done it in a more simple way, not as with the same technology as you have behind, but in a way. Then after that, I started looking at these who of them needs more attention than the other? Some of them also would be like, leave me alone, I'll do the job. Come and see me one time a month and I'll tell you what's happened. Mm-hmm. And some of them actually needed a weekly weekly visit. And that changed the whole way of mm-hmm. how we went out and visited them as the three top bosses in that organization. In the world we live in now, with all the uncertainty, what do you think leaders should do right now when it comes to you know making their business you can become unshakable or go through the storm they're hitting because it's not only the hospitality sectors all sectors it's going to go through a period of uncertainty i think the one piece of advice honesty and trust is what i would say with your people be 100 percent honest with them about uh, where your business is heading what shape it's in or what needs to happen uh, in order to build the business for customers and then trust your people to do a good job with that information. As long as you've hired the right people, trust them. They will do good by you if you have been 100% honest with them about what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, where you're headed, what the world of work is like right now, what you want them to focus on with your customers, and then let them do it. Just let them do it. And then come back to them and offer up ways in which you can help them do a better job. But listen to them. Uh, if they say I, I need this to do a better job then give it to them undoubtedly sort of let them have the data that enables them to make a, a better decision but trust them to do a good job that's a great advice the world needs more trust so on, on that note thank you very much for coming again and I hope that we soon again can connect because there was actually subjects we, we, we didn't explore in this podcast but I'm sure there's a, another one in, in, in near future where we can go deeper into that so thank you very much Cliff for coming thank you very much that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Cliff, for sharing your stories and your thoughts on the employee experience. Thank you to Laura from Let's Talk Video Production for your ongoing assistance making these podcasts happen. If you like today's podcast, please share, like, or even better, rate us on iTunes. We hope you enjoyed today's Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Mike, and Tune in next time for another industry interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us at hospitalitymavericks.com. Thanks for listening and be maverick.